Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. Uh, This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. Uh, We focus on issues faced in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, we're so excited to have uh, Dr. Jill Berkowitz. Um, uh, Dr. Berkowitz has spent her career, a 30-year career in education, uh, focused on issues of equity and best practices in curriculum, instruction, and assessment and technology, Um, And she is the co-author of The STEM Shift, a guide for school leaders with Dr. Ann Myers. And in addition, they co-author a blog, Leadership 360, for Ed Week. Um, Welcome, Jill. Hi, thank you so much. So glad to have you. And I I, um, am uh, delighted, especially uh, in light of the the small technology problem we had just seconds before mm-hmm. we went live. So thank you for your patience uh, with that. Um, so I've invited um, Jill to be on this uh, month's show um, uh, to talk to us about um, some of her work, but most importantly, um, a, a brilliant article that she wrote, um, I think um, very timely on fighting institutional racism, um, and I and specifically in education, um, because so much of uh, our national di- dialogue right now is about um, uh, race and and class um, and um, and the intersection between those and values and and I thought it was just a timely article that appeared. And invited Jill, and she uh, graciously accepted to be with us today and share with our audience um, some of her thoughts about what she's seen over the course of her career um, in equity and best practices. But um, I want to start with, um, you know, some of what, rather than make the assumption that everybody in the audience um, understands what we mean when we're talking about big constructs like institutional racism. Um, I'd just like to take just a moment to have you share with us um, kind of the, the frame that you, um, you start with when you're talking to individuals about equity, but, but uh, institutional racism in education. Okay. So um, I think it would be helpful if I talked about how I came to understand the value of institutionalization of belief systems. Initially, um, I I grew up in New York City, and then I moved up into a rural area in New York. Um, And for me, as a student in New York City, I had the blessing of growing up with children of all ethnicities, from all countries and all, um, you know, financial abilities or disabilities. And when I moved upstate, I saw something um, different because the the way 
I came up not as a student, but I came up as a teacher. So what I started to see was the difference in people's belief systems in each classroom. So Mm -hmm. whether it was about how to teach reading or how to teach math or how to treat um, a truant or how to discipline a student, they really existed differently in different classrooms. And so a child would go through an experience in the institution of a school district being Mm -hmm. exposed to different values and methods along the way so that the school really missed an opportunity to embed or to support community values by allowing each classroom to be a community. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to my being a middle school principal, um, there was a student, and and because she is known, I I can't reveal who she is, but Mm -hmm. I knew her before anybody else knew her. And (laughs) she came from a a home with um, a mom, a white mom from the Midwest, and her dad was um, from a prominent family in Senegal. And I noticed that the way she, and she was very smart and very clever and very energetic. And so I noticed the way people treated her was different. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't Mm -hmm. put my finger on it. So I acted as I did in many instances, kind of as her, I kept an eye out for her to make sure everything was okay. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward, fast forward, she's graduated from a prominent black college. She's working on her doctorate, and she stepped into a a place of leadership in an African-American community. And I remained in touch with her. And one of the things that struck me and concerned me was I wanted to ask her if she ever felt biased from me because if she had it would have been strictly out of ignorance on my part mm-hmm. and she said and and she is the reason why and, and she said this to me I would say at least five years ago but it has stuck with me and so when I was invited to to write a guest blog for star Saxstein, I, I was compelled to write write this and what she said to me was I never felt it from you I felt it from the institution you worked in mm. and and it and it broke my heart because I had never seen or thought of the institution being biased mm-hmm. holding bias you see mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I've, I it's been on my heart it's been on my heart for several years Mm-hmm. And and in the meantime, you know, tandem to that cooking in my heart time, um, I went on to get my doctorate. I studied common childhood experiences of sure. successful leader of successful leaders because I was curious about what made a leader, and so um, I, I learned about institutionalization of ideas through that path. And so I came to a place where I realized that just as or even more important than institutionalizing how you discipline children or how you teach them to read is 
forcing the organization to open each person has to open their own heart and examine what ignorance and bias may exist because we are the the we make the space we hold the space for children for 19 years in in districts where nobody moves mm-hmm. or as a national idea if children move within a state or without a state, the institution of schools has the opportunity to teach truth and welcome, not tolerance. That's, some, that's a word I've always uh, struggled with. Um, sure. So, right? So, right, right. So, it's, I can't, and I can't find a place that's done it. And mm-hmm. I can tell you, I'm not the person to talk to today about this. I am not. Um, you know, Spike Lee. I am not mm-hmm. Anna, you know, Vernay. I don't, I haven't done it, but I know that, um, I know that it has to be done. Sure. Our children are growing up watching the news. And if they're not, their parents are. And, and I'll tell you, um, you know, a quick, a quick story. A, a middle-class young man African-American young man was in a graduate class of mine, and it was right after um, Trayvon Martin. And he came to class late. It was a Saturday. Now, his father was a superintendent of schools in suburban New Jersey, and his mother was a principal in a neighboring district. He came into class really sweating, and he was very upset. And so I pulled, you know, I stepped outside to find out what was wrong. And it was that his car had broken down and he borrowed his mom's BMW to drive up to school because we were in New Falls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And out of the rear view mirror, he saw a police car. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, at the end of the story is the police car just happened to be behind him. But the fear that this young man experienced just from having a police car behind him, just certainly during the time immediately after Trayvon Martin's time, it, it was such a lesson for all of us. And I just hugged him and I said, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. So there are ta- if you stay, if, you know, I'm talking for, you know, like <laughs> white people, um, mm-hmm. We have we have to we have to. It's more than being aware. This is a heart opening time where we have to understand. Um, isn't today Juneteenth? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I feel humbled to speak to you on this day, mm-hmm. on the day that you know Danny Glover is in in Washington talking about reparations. But I don't mm-hmm. feel. I don't feel prepared to speak to anything other than I think we need to work harder and I think we need to work, do more heart work and I think we have to have many, many more conversations and I'm concerned about the present leadership that we have in our country because mm-hmm. aside from everything else that worries me, um, hatred, bias, and division is a center value that's being fanned. Um, 
And so, you know, so I, you know, I thank you for the opportunity. I don't, I, and I'm humbled by it, but I, I wish I had powerful answers. And I, well, I, I just have questions. Sure, sure. So, but let me, let me say this, you know, I, and in full disclosure, you know, I, when I read um, your, your, your guest article here, and mm-hmm. for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, where I'm talking about, it's in uh, Education Week Teacher, um, there was a um, guest post by Jill, um, and the, it was on um, uh, institutional racism so we don't fail our students. And um, mm-hmm. what, I, what I wanted to point out um, is that you say, you know, that you, you, you're not, you, you don't have uh, anything to offer, you know, in your, you know, your, your limited view on this. But let me, let me just say mm-hmm. what, I, what I recognize was, one, um, you've been in education for more than 30 years. Um, as an mm-hmm. elementary teacher and 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 principal in different levels, but as you even said in your article that um, you said in full disclosure was that you'd retired and you'd spent some time and you've spent some time step back um, and uh, taking a look at the bigger picture. And I think um, what you know what I wanted to accomplish was for my listeners. Um, that to to hear your reflections um, and your mm-hmm. perspective. You know, I've had others that have come on from different perspectives. I've had African American men, African American women, different people who have who have had um, perspectives about this topic. And I think yours, um, as a white woman, um, would it's very important and very valuable. Um, one thing that I that struck me um, in in what you wrote um, that I thought was interesting about there's a section you talk about um, you know kind of failing our black students that mm-hmm. um, you know you recognize that few people have focused on the the notion of of institutional racism um, but that but really you're called to people to learn more to put more attention to what that is and and you offer yes. some very some very uh, kind of concrete examples of so what can you do you can learn you can watch documentaries um, with mm-hmm. other people have conversations about this so that people understand um, kind of the legacy of what has been happening in schools um, this past week I had a, the privilege I had some students that were engaged in a uh, an activity in our leadership preparation program and we we started talking about just something as simple as um uh people who are taking the bus to complete a task mm-hmm. and and that while some people um have never read rode on a bus that that was um, in their um, in their community. It's important for you to understand <laughs> the challenges. So, so just even something as simple as that, that as a leader or a teacher in a building, to understand the challenges that when you say to people, you have to be here um, at a certain time, or or you have to mm-hmm. come and and be a part of 
of of this event, there are structures that actually prevent people from being full participants in the educational process as well. And so that's the nature, kind of the institutional nature that I wanted us to to get back to in terms of our okay. conversation is is that, you know, the kinds of things that you've seen that that don't uh, that don't go recognized, and I think just even from your article, you 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 talk about some of it in curriculum, um, and and one of the ones that a lot of people speak about is one of the most obvious, and you talk about it here also is in mm-hmm. discipline. And um, yes. and and where some people have turned school buildings into prisons. Um, but I'd like to That's hear it. your reflections on kind of from the education perspective. W- what would mm-hmm. be your advice since you've been a principal at different levels? What would be your advice to our principals and people at building level about what they need to be conscious of as they as they struggle to dismantle any um, institutional racism that might exist in their buildings. Well, I th- that's a that's a big ask. I think that there are, I I want to divide it because one part has to do with bias and it's as it relates to poverty, because poverty, whether it, it involves you know black families or white families. Poverty does what you just described. So, for example, if public transportation or or school buses that are, you know, a, a two-hour ride because you're all the way out in the Netherlands to get to school, some level of walking in the shoes of those people. I know I often sat in um, in meetings where a student had been suspended and the parent didn't show up. For the meeting mm-hmm. and, and, and the judgment, the judgment that takes place when, when the fact is that that parent, as an example, is taking care of their sick father who moved into their house, which raised their income level, which meant mm-hmm. her family lost food her family lost food stamps and she needs to go to the food stamp place, which is on the other side of town, but she has nobody to take care of the little one at home. And, and, and so it's not that she doesn't care. She may be the most invested in that child's education, but navigating poverty is something that most people who are not poor have no clue about. That's, that's number one. But the other thing is, for years now in education and in educational leadership, we've used the phrase all kids. We are preparing all kids for careers and life after school. Well, if we're in some random community upstate where there are no black children, mm-hmm. then, then there may not be motivation for investigating how we feel about African-American neighbors moving in or what the difference in our cultures are or what the, you know, what Juneteenth means even may not even be discussed in a school where there are no African-American kids, Mm -hmm. but those kids that graduate are going to go on to jobs and colleges and have lives that include people of all races. 
Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so they they count themselves out of this discussion, and that's not a good thing. So I think mm-hmm. that as long as we live in the United States, I'm going to assume that the the values here are intended to be values of welcome, and that's what mm-hmm. the Statue of Liberty is about. Okay, so mm-hmm. we need to learn how to to deal with each other. So I I I myself was so struck by 13th, the, the documentary, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. It, it really shifted my thinking to show me how I am responsible for those people in prison, that I mm-hmm. am, that my mm-hmm. career is, that the buildings I've led are, that that institutional pathway, not only, not only to fill the prisons, but to support slavery in the way the prisons are designed. Mm-hmm. That there is, no re- there is no rehabilitation. There is no care. It is housing of slaves. And, and, and I say it that way because a majority of the people in prisons are African-American. Mm-hmm. So, so the, but the thing for schools that schools do that is, I understand why it happens because everyone is overwhelmed with their jobs, but it can't be a showing of a video or somebody coming in from a prison and talking or, or anything. It can't be a one and done. It has to be a thread that goes through everything we do. Just like as we started to have families who adopted children and teachers had to be sensitive um, when they would have children in the third grade do family trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and we had to, we had to deal with that sensitivity um, or when they do a genetic uh, tracking back in high school um, and we had to become sensitive to that. We have to be sensitive to taking a look at, who are the teachers in front of the classroom and what are their values and what are they projecting? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, it can't be that in Miss X's classroom, you know, the, you know, the, I, I personally um, loved the kids that acted up because mm-hmm. they were honest and they were cute and, you know, they were testing their boundaries and I, I found that a joy in my, in my work. There were teachers who knew how to deal with that, and there were teachers who thought they needed to be punished. And my goal was to make sure institutionally people understood that I came from a place of um, discipline, not punishment. And discipline doesn't mean punishment. Discipline means teaching. Um, but clearly I learned after the fact that I did not do enough to change the institution that I worked in to be able to have kids of all colors feel accepted in the institution. They knew where their safe places were, but they did not feel that the institution um, as a whole, was the safe place. And that's, that's what I think 
people need to be prepared for. Whether or not you have a large black population, it's irrelevant. We are institutions within a country where we need to have common values about the fact that we are all welcome here. I was just out west, and um, I was in a, in a Navajo nation, and I felt such such sadness for the fact that the, every piece of land I stand on belonged to somebody else before. Mm-hmm. And I think we, you know, we need to find a way to get people leading institutions to understand um, how to lead with heart and to not be divided in their actions and to shape the institution so that it is welcoming to all people at all times. That's, that's a high bar, but I think that that, that is the goal and that should be the horizon line. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And, and um, I'm glad you brought up about the two documentaries you recommend um, just uh, for, for people who um, want to start um, by understanding some of the issues. The first, the 13th that you mentioned, I know is on Netflix mm-hmm. now um, yeah. that, that talks about the, kind of the prison pipeline that exists. Um, And then The Naked Truth is about um, the reality, as you put it, that young black women face, that they die in childbirth more than their white counterparts at quite a different rate. Um, And so, um, but those are, are, are two kind of extreme examples that people can understand that there are big, big differences in the way um, these populations experience being just being and um, and the the I go back to what your student said to you, which was mm-hmm. not from you but from the institution, from the organization mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that there are there are structures that are in place that um, prevent children from being able to um, realize their full potential, and in some cases, very small and, and subtle ways that, that go unrecognized. Um, I, I remember some years ago, um, my second daughter was uh, exposed to talented and gifted in a very interesting way. And I've shared the story countless times with individuals about the kinds of institutionalized practices that go unnoticed at times. But the short story is um, that um, she was due to be tested for talented and gifted and somehow during the process um, that they didn't get the, um, the permission form. And so they didn't test. And so, which was fine that she wasn't put in because she wasn't tested. Um, but, <laughs> Uh, one day, um, I just overheard her and her older sister talking, and uh, her older sister was in the program. And so I said, oh, um, so how's TAG? And so she looked at me. Now, this is her in the second grade, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. But she looked at me and said, oh, Daddy, um, I'm not in TAG. Only the white kids are in TAG. 
And I just looked and kind of a point of context that you have to understand is that at the time in this particular school district, I was uh, president of the school board. So I immediately, I said, what do you mean? And so she said, no, (laughs) only the white kids are in tag. So not to disrupt, you know, what was going on with, you know, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, I said, oh, Mm -hmm. okay. So long story short, (laughs) I went and looked into it. And what I saw was in that particular classroom, there out of about 24 kids there were she was the only african-american child and there were two hispanic children out of that class all of the children with the exception of those three were pulled out for talented and gifted and so it was something we had to discuss as a matter of practice and policy that what is the message, the unintended message that gets communicated to children when those kinds of things happen. And so that we took and a not long, just, not just your daughter who was excluded, right. oh, but to absolutely. every one of those white kids. That's right. right. That's right. And so the point was that, that looking at our practice here, that, you know, there were a lot of excuses and things that were made around, um, well, you know, we, we just didn't notice. And, and that's the thing about institutional racism yeah. was that yeah. um, those things go unnoticed that they just are, and they become truths and, and, and of themselves mm-hmm. to children as they develop. And so you, those right. are all things that have to be undone. And we spend time, be, you know, undoing those lessons that get um, perpetuated and, and repeated, you know, just over and over for our, for our children. Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of children of color, there are other places, I have four girls and, you know, there are other mm-hmm. places where from a gender perspective, they get uh, mm-hmm. institutionalized. But as we're talking about here, institutional racism, there is that it, what is the big message here is that there are structures that are put in place yes. that are often <clears throat> invisible. They're often invisible structures that, that communicate um, a value, as you, you mentioned those mm-hmm. earlier, a value and a sense of, of, of order that aren't necessarily true and often are not true. So I think and that yet, and yet here. and and yet they are lessons children learn and and so that if you think about those kids learning that from those teachers that lesson carries through to the rest of their life wherever they work and whatever they do and so just like having to examine one's own self about one's values and assumptions about anything, any of the work done in schools, any of it, there has to be a thread dealing with racism because if I have learned nothing else in these past four years, it's that it is alive and well and it is hurtful and damaging and it is something that has to be has to be dealt with and where is the only place we can get a shot at it 
it's in public schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank and you. So, well and so, oh, <laughs> so because it's the only place we get to um, challenge the thinking of kids. And so that's why I just want to put in a, a swerve a little bit to thinking about project-based learning and STEM ideas, not, not to the exclusion of the arts at all, so let me put that out there, and not to the exclusion of the humanities at all. The idea of STEM is to how do you approach something where it's a problem-solving journey for kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, an empa- that's empowering. So mm-hmm. I, for, I, I really wish I could remember the name of this professor who was upstate New York. He's out in California now. He, he wrote about doing lesson planning like game planners do. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, the idea of gaming isn't about computers. It's about the solving the problem and getting the opportunity to solve it again if you didn't solve it the first time. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is if we empower kids. So, for example, I was never taught about the American Revolution from the other side of the pond. Mm-hmm. I was never taught about how the, the people in England felt. I, was, I never felt for, you know, the history is written by the victors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think a STEM approach for teaching history would be they have to learn it from both sides. You know, yeah. and so the Civil War, brother against brother, and what were they fighting over? Well, they were fighting over several things, but most mm-hmm. importantly, you know, you know, Lincoln Lincoln did the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, that, that's the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story because mm-hmm. what's underneath, and that's what I'm talking about. Institutions have the opportunity to make a difference here because the remnants of what that war was about lives in the hearts and minds of more people than are willing to admit it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the cause remains unknown. So yes. For example, we don't need slaves to till the fields anymore. We don't mm-hmm. need, you know, you know, I look, I live near the Hudson river and um, I look at the, the Vanderbilt mansion as an example, or we, even when I go to FDR, um, right. You know, I look yeah. and I say, boy, this must've been, this grass must've been hard to cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause you know, they, but we don't, we don't have that anymore, but we have mm-hmm. the remnants, remnants of some kind of belief system that calls for superiority. And here's, yeah. here's a, you know, another angle, uh, you know, I, I, um, growing up again, like I said, in New York city, I knew about Robert Moses and the, you know, the, the, the bridges and getting out to Long Island and how wonderful that was. And he opened up the suburbs until I read Mindy Fuller Love's book, Root Shock. Mm-hmm. Now she, you know, do you know, do you know her? No, I'm not familiar with her. Okay. So she is actually a psychiatrist and she teaches at Columbia mm-hmm. and, um, First of all, I was attracted to her name because Full of Love is like the best name ever. <laughs> but, sure. but she wrote about how tearing up city neighborhoods hurts America. 
And, and so I saw the other side. So when we teach American history about wasn't it wonderful, they destroyed these neighborhoods to build the bridges to go out to Long Island so that people could live in the suburbs and live this wonderful life. I was never taught about what happened to the people who lost those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see, so, sure. so using, so it's not about let's have an assembly about not being prejudiced. It's about changing the way we teach and learn and showing both sides of the coin, show, showing both experiences so that there's a, um, an opportunity in our public schools for compassion and empathy mm-hmm. to develop and understanding. Because otherwise, if, if we don't force our teachers to develop lessons um, that, you know, what just popped in my mind was another, the, uh, Henrietta Lacks, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay, so, so we had phenomenal science going on. But we didn't have the respect for a poor black woman or her family and took from her and made cancer advances, mm-hmm. but with no, with no thought about right. the value of her as a human being. So when we, teach, when we teach about STEM and people in science, we can't not teach them about empathy and compassion. We can't ask them to not think about, um, you know, look at the Tuskegee Airmen. That needs to be more than a passing page in a, in a history book that may or may not get read. You can hear I'm getting. That's right. No, know, no, it's quite here. okay. It's um, quite okay. But these, are, these are ways, and there isn't one way to enter it. There are many ways to enter it, you know, whether it's doing a group reading of the new Jim Crow or, again, another one of Dr. Fuller Love's book, The House of Joshua. Um, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Have, I have a, a, a colleague who is part of his church community, and um, they all read What If All the Kids Are White the, uh, by uh, German Sparks and Ramsey. So, there are ways it's whatever people where people find they are most ready and their community is most accepting is the way you walk in. So whether it's your science teacher, you know, or the lunchroom monitors or the lunch ladies or the bus drivers, um, you know, or the custodians or your English department, you know, it doesn't matter who's the most ready, but the institution must remain sensitive to ignorance and bias because mm-hmm. it exists. It, and scientifically, we are wired to be biased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, we ha- and we should accept that because when we were out in the wild, we needed to look to determine whether you were friend or foe. Right. So genetic, you know, it's in our DNA, but we have a mind. That's right. And our mind has, right? And so the difference is knowing that I'm going to create, I'm going to be biased, you know, I'm going to make a judgment, some of us quicker than others, um, you know, some in seconds, 
Um, and usually we're wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I think it comes back to some of the writings of Parker Palmer about being open hearted and, and not divided inside of ourselves. So saying you're colorblind as an educational leader is useless because that means you're not attending to the real bias that exists in your organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it, you know, that, that is, those are all very, very relevant points. And just think we started with you saying that you didn't know uh, you, there was little you could contribute, but this is exactly what I um, had hoped for and was looking forward to. Uh, and I, I, I really appreciate, I wish we had more time um, I really appreciate your contribution today, and I'm sure there are others out there. And you know, we didn't even uh, open it up for calls. This has been so uh, enriching, oh, and I'm sure, sorry. I'm sure. No, 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 it's okay. Um, I'm sure that um, our listeners out there um, will appreciate it. Um, as I said, this is part of an ongoing um, conversation that we've been doing for a couple of years now, and I'm, I'm glad that. Uh, first of all, thank you for um, the the bravery and being courageous enough to write the um, the article you wrote, and um, just wishing you the best in continuing your um, your work um, now. and And I think there's something to be said about uh, stepping back and reflecting on the system and making a contribution to try to change things. Um, we really appreciate that. And so, thank you um, so much, Brian. Yes, no problem. And and to our listeners, thank you for joining us again today. Uh, we'll look for you next uh, month. Until then, go well, stay well. <laughs>